Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Utah Women's Giving Circle is presenting their Resilient 2020 Speakers Series from Susan B. Anthony to RBG. The subtitle is The History, the Resilience, and Call to Community. The including event in the series is on Thursday at noon. It's titled New Possibilities Amidst the Unraveling. Sarah Jones, CEO of Inclusion, Inclusion Pro, rather, will talk about how to identify opportunities in the midst of turmoil. She'll remind us that unraveling our expectations gives us space, freedom, and clear eyes to see things differently. And uh, that event, as I mentioned, on Thursday at noon. It is free, open to the public. Uh, it is virtual, and uh, you do need to register. And you can do that by going to utahwomensgivingcircle.com and click on Events. Uh, Sarah Jones creates global diversity and inclusion strategies to elevate inclusive cultures. She's CEO of Inclusion Pro and a founder of the Women Tech Council, a national organization focused on economic impact of women in the technology uh, sector. Also serves on the Utah State Workforce Development Board, Board of Trustees for Intermountain Healthcare, and Executive Board of Silicon Slopes. Uh, Sarah Jones, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Good, good morning. Glad to have you with us. Looking forward to the, to the talk. Um, you are featured on a, in, a, in a TED Talk, TEDx Salt Lake City. I think it's from last year. Uh, telling your remarkable story. You were in, adopted from South Korea at the age of three, then miraculously found your birth the family after 42 years. That's where I'd like to start and get into some of the other um, uh, things which I think flow from this. Uh, it's very, and I'll, I'll uh, point people to this TED Talk. Uh, you can go to Inclusion Pro uh, to find the, uh, the TED Talk, inclusionpro.com, or just Google uh, TEDx Salt Lake City. Um, so, at a very young age, you were, um, I, I, maybe just to start there, why were you adopted? <laughs> well, it's actually really good timing, Tom, because uh, yesterday, November 1st, started National Adoption Awareness Month. And um, a lot of adoptees have actually renamed that to National Adoptee Awareness Month. Um, and really specifically with the intent to really listen to adoptee voices, which often have been under, I guess, underheard or under, under you know, not well understood. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a privilege for me to be able to share my unique story on the TEDx Salt Lake City stage and also some of the realities of what's called transracial adoption, where a child is adopted from one race or ethnicity and adopted into a different race or ethnicity. Oftentimes it's intercountry, but we certainly know that there's a lot of black children domestically being adopted and black Latino children um, being domestically adopted by white, white families in the United States. So there are some commonalities there as well, as well as covering, you know, a lot of European adoptions, you know, from like, for example, the Eastern Bloc, which I guess isn't technically Europe, but the Eastern Bloc um, had a high rate of adoptions a while ago as well with a lot of children with, um, you know, reactive attachment disorder that were highly publicized in the United States. And so those are, you know, what we would consider to be white children, but certainly interculturally there's, uh, you know, a lot of challenges and with language barriers. So um, my story is, you know, somewhat unique. I actually didn't know I was three years old, Tom. 
when I <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> until about a couple of years ago <laughs> because I found out I was actually seven months older than I really am, mm-hmm. and um, you know it's always those mysteries of not knowing your real story and finding out all of these details later in life is just you know kind of mind blowing. But um, yes, I was quite young. Um, you know, technically, I was three years old when I was adopted, and I was raised in in Utah. So I was adopted by a family that lived at the time in Sandy, Utah, and grew up here, um, you know, assimilated into the Utah culture and um, had, you know, what what I think many would call a very wonderful and successful life. So I, I guess I'll stop there and just see what questions that you have. Y- yes, yes. Uh, and by the way, in, in your TED Talk, <laughs> you get a laugh by saying, uh, as a middle-aged woman, when you find out you're seven months older, you didn't really appreciate that, but... Uh... <laughs> um, but, as, as I, I wouldn't either. Um, so, uh, 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 maybe I could, we could start with the tattoo. You, you, uh, you came with a tattoo and maybe a little later in the story, we'll you know, talk about that. But, uh, and then your, your adoptive parents, uh, you know, understandably said, well, I don't know, that tattoo's maybe going to be a problem. People make fun of you. So they had it removed. Sure. Yeah. And I think, I think we can all empathize and understand that I certainly don't, don't uh, I'm not upset with my parents for having it removed. Um, we know what a taboo tattoos were back in the, the 70s. And so um, what I didn't know, though, was what it meant. And I didn't know, um, you know, it's, it's interesting when, when you are adopted, you sort of um, have to kind of work through a few things emotionally to figure out, you know, do I want to find my birth family and, and, kind of process some of those things. So I didn't actually, it didn't connect with me until just recently that, you know, the social workers in Korea, you know, probably knew that my parents, my my father wanted to reclaim me. And that's one of the things that is difficult for me to process now as I'm older and really understanding the significance of my tattoo. When I was younger, it was more of just a, you know, just a interesting factoid, you know, that you'd share, you know, when people say, what's unique about you? And I'd say, oh, well, I have a tattoo. And because they were so unusual back then, people would say, you know, kind of disbelieve. No, you don't. And so, you know, I'd show them the scar and it would generate, you know, a small conversation. Um, but the symbol is a cross. And it's four dots underneath. And it's, it's slightly angled. So we, did, we weren't sure if it was an X or a cross. And, you know, back then, I think it was hard for me and my parents to, to contemplate that my, uh, whoever gave me the tattoo may have been Christian, right? So, you know, that was one possibility. Um, we would ask people who spoke Korean, you know, we'd show them the symbol and say, do you, do you know what this is? Have you ever seen a symbol like this? And we'd always get the answer, no. <clears throat> Excuse me. So my entire life, no one knew what, what the symbol meant. And so when I did reunite with my birth family, they told me that the cross is a symbol of a Christian cross. And then the four dots were actually my father, my two brothers, and myself. So a symbol of our family. Hmm. And, uh, you know, apparently my birth father was quite religious. So, you know, at the time in 1976, and I don't know how religious he was. Um, I, I do believe he was still remained a religious man his entire life. But uh, 
apparently it's a symbol of our family praying. And um, so, you know, when you're, you know, mid-40s and realizing that you're carrying a symbol of your family on your arm and you, you never realized this entire time that it really represented represented us, um, it's pretty, um, you know, I, I just just one of those moments where I think there's just kind of a lot of sadness kind of wrapped up in that moment of understanding. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you say in the talk that uh, the removal of the tattoo, understandable as that is, you know, from your adopted parents, uh, it, it came to, to you to be a symbol of losing your identity and, and culture. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when you're assimilated into a brand new culture, you really lose everything of your previous identity, right? And brand new name, culture, religion. I mean, even if even if you look at the concept of ethnicity and culture, right? I'm not Korean by ethnicity, and so and culture enculturated, right? And so. Um, you know, a lot of people will, you know, when I grew up, would try to talk to me about Korean, my Korean ethnicity. And, you know, it's that, you know, moment of like, I, I really have no idea how to connect to a Korean culture. Um, and so, you know, it really is a removal and exchange of an entire new set of identity and ways of being. Right. And I think it's so fundamentally profound how deep that change is, which is why for for some adoptees, there's a lot of grief in that realization. Right. And um, if you look at every sort of personal identity category that we usually identify people with, there's very little that I have in common with my Korean brothers. Right. Except for our DNA. And so it is a. You know, it's a complete shift in identity that I think maybe people don't really understand the, the magnitude of that. Um, so for me, you know, it is a, a symbol of having that removal happen, right? Uh, sort of, um, you know, you're crossing over. I, I, I wrote a little piece on Facebook around the cross kind of being a symbol of crossing over, right, into a new life and into a new identity. Did you, uh, you know, uh, kids, you know, did, there's a powerful urge to fit in, right? And um, yeah, did, I, I guess you probably had those those feelings that were were you made fun of for because for, you look different. Oh yeah, yeah. I grew up in Utah, so you know, right right now, I think the I think the ethnic population for Asians is I think like three percent, three and a half percent, right? So if you think about my environment in the 80s, it was even less than that. And, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting the way our brains learn and process. And I think a lot of, you know, adoptees who have a different race than their family would, would tell you that when you're surrounded by white people, you have this cognitive dissonance, right? You feel white, but then you look into the mirror, for example, because all you see around you is white, and then you will have this moment of like, oh, there, there's someone totally different looking back at me, right? And, you know, you look in photos, and my hair is, you know, really, really dark. And sometimes I would think, wow, my hair is really dark. It just doesn't connect in a way that feels like 
completely natural, right? And so then, you know, you feel white because you're assimilated into white culture, but then you'll have people who don't know you treat you differently, right? They'll try to, you know, speak Asian words to you or say hello to you in Chinese or Japanese um, and make all sorts of, of assumptions about you. So that happened all the time growing up. And um, certainly I shared, uh, you know, just a few of the comments that would have been made growing up. I mean, I really only barely scratched the surface of what it's like to be, you know, adopted in my TED Talk. But, um, but you really had to constantly deal with these comments because you look so different from your parents. Mm. You make a, a – there's a line in the talk that really struck me. You, you – you... And it talks about the narratives, the, the stories, and how powerful they are. Mm-hmm. You say your parents' adoption story was like a beautiful, warm blanket, but uh, you, you found it suffocating. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's the word you used. Yeah, just, you know, I, I use the phrase, I couldn't emotionally breathe. And, you know, to be very clear, a lot of it is so unintentional, right? Because of the narratives that were were being formed back in the 70s around why should you adopt, right? Why is it a good thing? You're helping these children, um, these poor children, you know, in, you know, in these quote-unquote war-torn countries, even though Korea in the 70s wasn't really, you know, I mean, it was 25 years past the Korean War by then. Um, but all of these narratives that were happening in policy, politics, and then in parenting, right, were actually the driving narratives. So, so there wasn't really space at the time to create any space for children to have their own narrative, right? Because the, the narrative of we're helping these children and you're such a good person for helping these children was so, so, so strong that it was like almost impossible to kind of, you know, find any space to be able to say, hey, that makes me uncomfortable when you say that to me, right? And it comes from everyone. It comes from, you know, your parents in certain ways. It comes from the community. It comes from church people, right? And when you're adopted, you're trying to hold on to those, I need to be a good, I need to be a good kid, right? Like those kind of pressures and challenges. And so very rarely are you going to push back on an adult who's, you know, reinforcing how good your parents are for doing such a good thing and, you know, being, being angels, right? They're really kind of elevating the, the parent narrative in a way that if you even try to challenge that, you seem ungrateful, right? So it's this tension that was created by the way um, we've been telling the adoption story for years and years. I think recently, probably in the last 10, 15 years, there's been pushback to reframe and restructure that, although it hasn't really completely taken hold. And I think for adoptees, that's, that's really hard to see. You said something else. You, you realized at a certain point you'd never grieved your own adoption. Tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a little bit tied to the parent narrative. There's not really any space to say it's okay to be sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you are sad, it, you know, um, for example, I share the photo of me in the orphanage. When you're sad, it's, it's used to reinforce, like, you know, look, look how, 
look how much you were struggling. Aren't, aren't you glad that you have this new life so that you're not in that situation anymore? Now, when I talk about that sadness, I talk about a little girl in an orphanage who had just lost her family and that, you know, her reality is very different than what, you know, an adult in, in a, a, you know, first world country would view that sadness to be, right? And to validate and to make real what these young children really do experience. So I think I would say for a long time I never ventured there um, emotionally, just because um, you know you're you're taught to put these not taught by parents, but I mean you instinctively put up emotional walls, right, to really protect yourself. So if you think about the loss that I experienced, and that I was three years old, I fully understood what was happening, right, and then to think about the emotional barriers that I had to put up to survive the emotional grief around that experience and not really having anyone around me that would ever understand what that experience is like. Um, I spent a lot of years not really going there emotionally. Mm. I think out of self-protection. Yeah. Um, do you, have you had conversations n- now, you know, with, with your adoptive uh, uh, parents uh, about these, these issues? Um, you know, that would stand in for, you know, many adoptive parents who maybe would have yeah. a hard time understanding all these these emotions, you know? Yeah. You know, it's it's been good, I think, for my adoptive parents to really hear my real uh, perspectives. It's been hard, right? Because I, what, I, what I do talk about in my TED Talk is a set of skills that adoptive parents need to build and understand for themselves that they're going to be raising a child from a different race or culture. And if you think about like parents in my parents' generation went through decades without really understanding those skills. So I think, you know, having a moment of empathy to realize how hard that is for them to really kind of fully understand how to build that skill set now is is really challenging because they were you know, raised with an entirely different narrative of we're just trying to do a good thing for you, right? Why Why would you be sad or upset or, um, you know, look at this, you know, you know, all of the good things. Um, and so, you know, I would say we're st- we still have to work through it. It is, it's not an overnight shift by any means. Um, it's a, it's a whole new set of behaviors. It's a whole new language. <laughs> and I would say we're still working on it. If, you know, if I'm being real and honest and, uh, just trying to figure things out. So, um, you know, one thing that I, I want to make really clear is that, you know, finding your adoptive family or your birth family is not a necessity for every adoptee. And I think a lot of people come away from my story. You know, I'll get a lot of comments saying, you know, I know someone who's adopted and I would love for them to find their birth family. (laughs) And I have to help them see that, well, you know, that's not a happy ending. It's not, this is not a fairy tale, right? This is real life. You know, there's a whole set of challenges that now open up when you find your birth family, right? And if you choose to, to tell your adoptive family how you really feel, it's a whole new set of challenges. So, um, 
you know, that's what I would like for people to be ready for is just to really understand that the adoption journey is never ending. I mean, here I am in my mid-40s, you know, and still trying to process all of those things. And I think it'll just last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you, you mentioned that. It's, you know, it's not a fairy tale. You know, when I would, uh, was looking on, on the website, Inclusion Pro website, and, and the, the TEDx, TEDx Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. and and we'll get into, you know, telling the, I guess what I was going to frame was the happy ending, right? There's some happiness, right? You found your, your birth family. Um, you know, some pictures of you with your brothers. And that is very happy, mm-hmm. but but you're saying, you know, it's not a fairy tale ending. The, the journey continues. It's just complex, mm-hmm. right? Certainly, happiness can be part of it, but sometimes we um, hyper elevate, you know, the concept of happiness, you know, the concept of miracles, the concept of, um, you know, we try to come very quickly to an answer. I guess that's the way I would describe it, right? So, when I saw my birth family, so many people wanted to weigh in on, oh, you know, it was meant to be timing. Don't you see God's hands in, hand in this? And, you know, it's such a complex time that, um, you know, giving oneself time, grace, and, you know, the ability to fully process all of the emotions, the, the wide range, there's anger sitting there too, right? And there's, um, you know, there's anger, you know, and, and I was jealous that my brothers got to be raised by my family and all these stories that people told me if I would have been alone in Korea by myself, aren't I so grateful to be adopted when I'm like, well, no, my brothers went back and lived with my father, like all these stories I was told, right? So you have to like sort of unpack all of that and give yourself time to process. So not jumping too quickly to the happy ending or to the re- to the resolution that I think we as humans or I don't know maybe it's the way we tell stories in America but not trying to jump too quickly to what does this mean right and just letting it be and letting um, you know what whatever you're processing in that moment happen right and I think we we just don't give ourselves that space or you know, maybe it's a new set of skills to fully empathize with that experience because, again, the narratives, right? Um, oh, you found your birth family. You must be so happy, right? People don't want to think deeper and harder than that. Yeah, that's probably the thing. You know, you just want to, uh, if you're consuming the story, you just want to consume the story at that level and, and go away with a happy glow, right? <laughs> but but it's more yeah. complex than that, yeah. Um, so uh, you stated a statistic. It's something like, I don't know, that a large number of, of folks, I don't know if this is just uh, for Korean adoptions, they go looking for their birth families. Uh, many people never find them. Yeah, and in, in my generation, I think it's easier for, for the younger generation to find their birth families. But in my generation, the records were completely closed. And, you know, names were changed birth dates, as in my case, uh, my name was not changed, but my birth date was changed. Um, information is changed. And it's not that they don't have that information. In fact, when I reached out to the adoption agency, just as a curiosity, they came back and told me my, my real birth date. And I like almost fell on the floor because they had had this information for like over 40 years. And it was one of the pieces that 
helped me confirm that my birth family was who they were because my uncle was like, this is your birthday, right? It's, a, it's the day after my birthday. And um, so those are, those are data points that the birth family remembers. But if you're adopted in a different country, you're given a whole different set of data, right? And that's why it can be really complex to find your birth family. Um, you know, they, they, they tell you a different story in your records, right? They said, um, I was, uh, I was abandoned at city hall and found like a, found by a city hall officer. Well, if you're told that in your mind, right, you're probably picturing this really sad story of a family that just drops a kid off and just leaves them. Right. And it turns out that it was an entirely different sequence of events but it's framed in a way to really make you seem abandoned. So you can be, you know, basically uh, adopted outside of the country. And so, which is unfortunate, right? That they have to tell the story that way in order to make it legal for you to be separated from your birth family. Right. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't remember what the original question was, Tom, yeah, honestly. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's but, fine. That's um, fine. Um, I, I just to yeah. um, point out, you, you had said earlier about your tattoo, um, you know, that uh, the removal of that tattoo made you feel, at least at some point, that you were lo- lost your identity and culture. The tattoo was very instrumental, I understand, in helping you find your, your birth uh, family. So the, the tattoo had been removed, but I guess you had remembered what it, what it uh, looked like. Is that how you were able well, to use that? Scar, um, oh, a scar. A scar. Okay. On my arm, so. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And my parents and I would talk about it growing up. And so they, you know, point out the lines and the dots. And so, um, you know, I always knew what it was. I always knew why it was there. Um, and so I decided to just start, you know, I, I had, you know, I had known that if I was going to search for my birth family, that it could take a very long time. Some Korean adoptees spend years searching for their birth family. So the the percentage of less than 15% is not over-exaggerated. Like, as I said, it's very hard because they change the records, they change the information, you don't know. Sometimes all you have is a picture and maybe a guess of where you're born, right? And so, um, you know, social media was on the rise. I was in tech um, and I just decided to, you know, I was ready to find out and see if, this, you know, special tattoo. Um, I really never heard of any other Korean adoptee having a tattoo this large as mine. And I've heard of like little like um, tattoo dots on people, like their wrists or their, um, you know, you know, in, in some inconspicuous place on their body. But I had never heard of a, of a adoptee that had a really large tattoo on their arm. And so, obviously, that is pretty unique. <laughs> and so, I started sharing it on social media. And yeah, I mean, it's really the power of social media to connect people across the world. I mean, the other disadvantage I had, Tom, obviously, is I didn't know a lot of Korean people. And you cannot pass a tattoo around, you know, white people to try to find your birth family. You have to get it into Korean communities. And luckily, um, Korean communities are really starting to create Facebook groups online. And, you know, so I shared with a, a few groups and um, there, there's also a database. Um, the, the Korean government has, you know, become a little bit more proactive in helping 
uh, adoptees find their birth families. At some point, they really stopped, um, you know, after the Seoul Olympics and some of the press that they got, they really stopped doing international adoptions. It slowed it down incredibly. And so they do have a database where um, children who are searching for their birth families can post information about themselves. There's about 8,000 profiles on that database, and I'm the only one with the keyword tattoo on that database, right? So that's really how unique my tattoo is. But luckily, uh, my brother's friend saw the photo. And uh, so, yeah. Mm. So at a certain point, you're reunited with your family. Your, your your father, your birth father, has passed, I think, by by this time. But you're able to yeah. reunite with your two brothers. Um, what, mm-hmm. what was that like? I imagine, a lot of emotions, I imagine. Oh, yeah. A, a lot of emotions. There's, there's a phase of sort of disbelief, right, where you oh, – how do I explain it? You kind of want to disprove everything, right, because you can't believe that this is happening. And so, but once I kind of, you know, my, my middle brother, uh, so both my brothers are older, but my middle brother just looks so much like me that it's just really un, it's unmistakable. And so it's just, you know, that moment of, of being able to, except for your kids, being able to see people who have the same DNA as you, right? It's just, you know, when, when I really have, never seen anyone that even remotely looks like me. It is just, uh, you know, uh, stunning to have, um, to be reconnected with your real family. Um, <clears throat> and when I say real, I mean my biological family. Um, you know, and in, in America, I'm, I'm pretty short. <laughs> you know, compared to my Korean family, I'm pretty tall. Mm-hmm. So there's those moments of like, you know, massive similarities with DNA, but also kind of a very different, you know, sort of experience, right? Because, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I guess larger for lack of a better word. And that is such a new experience for me, right? To, to have people that are, you know, my same height and, and facial features and all of that fun stuff that, uh, I think it is really, you know, a really delightful part of finding your birth family. Um, but there's, you know, alongside that, there's also a massive language barrier. Mm-hmm. Well, we're overdue for a break. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to yeah. talk briefly some more about adoption and get into inclusion and diversity. Uh, in the TED Talk, uh, you and the TED Talk, uh, Sarah Jones, talking about we need a, a healthy adoption ecosystem. Maybe we could treat that briefly after the break and then get into your work with Inclusion Pro. Uh, Sarah Jones is our guest. Uh, she is a CEO of Inclusion Pro, and uh, she'll talk about how to identify opportunities in the midst of turmoil and remind us that unraveling our expectations gives us space, freedom, and clear eyes to see things differently. This will be part of her presentation titled New Possibilities Amidst the Unraveling. And this is the last of uh, three presentations in the Utah Women's Giving Circle's uh, Fall Resilient 2020 Speaker Series. And so you can hear uh, Sarah Jones participate in this event. It's virtual and it's free, but you do need to register. It's Thursday at noon, Thursday at noon, and you can register by going to Utah Women's Giving Circle. Uh, dot com and then clicking on events. And we'll have more with Sarah Jones following this break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Palmer Home Furnishings, offering a variety of bedroom sets and mattresses from brands like Maloof, Spring Air, and Serta. Located at 1670 South Highway 165 in Providence. Information at palmerhomefurnishings.com. Support also comes from Utah State University, declaring 2020 the Year of the Woman, celebrating often unknown Aggie women, those who served as pioneers from the institution's earliest days to those paving the way for future generations of leaders and innovators. America, were we ready for this election? This is Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me, my guests, and listeners from around the country for a live conversation on the night after election night. We'll take calls on your voting experiences and analyze the results and the ongoing counts. America, are we ready? Wednesday evening, beginning at 6, here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest is Sarah Jones. Uh, she is a CEO uh, of Inclusion Pro, and uh, she's the uh, speaker for the last uh, event in the Utah Women's Giving Circle Speaker Series. And uh, that uh, event is coming up on uh, Thursday, Thursday at noon, right here, uh, right on, it's in. Um, Virtual event. That's the word I want. It's a virtual event uh, because of uh, COVID, obviously. Um, and it's free, but you do need to register. And you can go to utahwomensgivingcircle.com and click on events to uh, to join this uh, free event. I uh, should mention that uh, we're going to have a special uh, second hour of Access Utah uh, coming up uh, just at 10 o'clock today. And uh, we'll treat uh, the COVID situation uh, in Utah. Utah recently set a new single-day record for COVID-19 cases. We'll have uh, a person on from the governor's office. Uh, We'll have someone from the Southeast Utah Health Department and someone on from the Bear River Health Department in northern Utah. We're taking your calls and questions as well by email right now to upraxis at gmail.com, or you can call us uh, during that hour. Hope you'll stay tuned for that. You can reach us here with this conversation as well by those same means, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com, or call us at 800-826-1495. So Sarah Jones in this TED Talk, by the way, you can go to inclusionpro.com to find the TED Talk. You end by talking about, uh, let's see, how do you phrase it? You say we need a healthy adoption ecosystem. Uh, Tell me about that. I mean, um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a realist and, you know, I, I, I think that certainly, I think most people will agree, let's do what's best for children, right? And I think for a long time, we haven't really given children who are adopted a way to really talk about and, and share what are the range of experiences that they have. Now, I certainly, you know, my TED Talk share my experience, um, but it is not representative of every every adoptee's experience. And really that ability to really understand the full range of experiences um, that hasn't really been done before. It's, I would say it's been done in pockets, but um, usually, for example, in the Korean adoptee community, it's really kind of it, within the community itself and not wider known what the range of experiences are. 
And there has been some research done, but certainly, like I mentioned earlier, it's a lifelong experience, right, of how do you navigate these complexities of adoption throughout your entire life. And so I don't think, you know, the perspectives of children who are adopted have been as well understood or, or let, let's maybe say validated as well as they could be because oftentimes it's, they're sort of overwhelmed by other forces of policy, of, um, you know, the adoptive parent community that just has, you know, might have some difficulty being challenged. Um, with a different narrative than the one they have really sort of uh, <laughs> operated by. Um, but there are some parent groups that I think are doing a great job of really addressing the realities of transracial adoption and intercountry adoption and really saying, let's get real about how, how difficult that this is. And um, I often think that, um, that, you know, I don't think adoption is going to go away but I do think there can be a much healthier approach, as in many situations, where instead of just looking for, you know, only the good of what you're trying to do, because I think everybody does have good intent, but realizing that there are some things, no matter how, how you know, how hard we're trying we're just never going to be able to always solve all of the, the challenges. And are there better ways to actually, you know, go about a, a policy? So, for example, a lot of people that, you know, really want to help children who have been displaced from their homes in war-torn countries, well, is, you know, it, it's, are there other ways to actually support better infrastructure within those countries so the children don't have to be adopted out of their um, you know, current environments, right? So one example of that is, is um, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, who recently was appointed to the Supreme Court. There was a lot written about her children's adoptions, I would argue, without necessarily their, their permission. Um, but, you know, a lot of the narratives are very similar, right? They were in a challenging, you know, situation in Haiti. There was an earthquake. Oh, my goodness, we wanted to help them, right? So, um could there have been better economic flow into more stability into Haiti so that those children didn't have to be displaced, right? Were their parents truly, um, you know, deceased or do they have living relatives? Um, luckily, the United Nations has done a really good job recently of really promoting um, adoption, well, really trying to, to limit the concept of orphanages. Right, recognizing that most children in orphanages actually have living relatives. That's just a fact, right? So why are we so quick to adopt children rather than finding a healthy place for them and an economic stable, a more economically stable situation for them in their home countries? So there's a lot of policy work being done. And I think it really is because we're listening more to the experiences of adoptees and recognizing that flying them halfway across the world might not be the best thing for them. Um, but let's get creative and more innovative about ways that you can truly help children thrive. Hmm. 
Well, it's a fascinating story, fascinating issue. Um, I want to spend the last uh, 15 minutes, uh, however, on on the the subject of, of your talk, obviously, and and the subject of your work yeah. now, nowadays. Um, <laughs> and, and there, but I think that, I think I can see a through line here. I don't tell me if I'm wrong. Um, from, you know, based on your experiences. Um, you you now consult with companies on uh, inclusion and diversity. I think that's the work of Inclusion Pro, right? Uh, how did how did that begin yeah. for you? Well, I've actually been doing that my whole career, so it is interesting that you know I'm focusing more on sort of my personal identity at this stage of my career. Um, but I've been doing diversity and inclusion work in various forms ever since I graduated from law school, and uh, I actually went into an industry that. Not highly represented with women, and I think it had a probably five percent women at the time. I was a patent attorney, and uh, so I definitely had understood, you know, not only being raised, uh, you know, as one of the few Asians in every single community that I was, you know, operating in, but then also from a career perspective, now going into an industry where I was definitely the minority um, in many, many respects. And so my interest in really building inclusive cultures um, began very early in my career. So whether I was doing it internally within an organization or through a more external form, um, like I co-founded Women Tech Council in 2007, which was about 13 years ago, um, to really bring people together around diversity and inclusion. I've just always been doing this my whole career um, and really building the skill sets but then also, um, because I have worked in many different business environments and also as an executive, I really understand how to operationalize diversity and inclusion. And so um, I offer strategies, uh, leadership strategies for executive teams on how to align their efforts within their organization to really maximize the ability to create an inclusive work culture. I was reading uh, somewhere, I, I don't know, there, somewhere on your website, uh, you talked about how, uh, you know, companies have been working on diversity, um, you know, in, in hiring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but that's, uh, you know, that's the necessary but not sufficient, right? The inclusion is, the, the culture of inclusion is, is necessary. Yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting, an interesting myth that's been floating around for years that, gosh, if we just hire enough diversity, we'll be inclusive. That's so not true, right? And I think everyone, when we say it like that, I think it's logical, right, that, it, that just hiring candidates uh, for diversity's sake is not going to create the right culture. Um, a couple of reasons for that, which is um, oftentimes culture, well, I would say most of the time culture is really strongly influenced by the leadership of an organization. It's very, very challenging to change a culture from grassroots, from the ground up, right? It always is much more transformative if you're doing it from the leadership on down. The second thing is that oftentimes the diversity hiring is happening at the entry level. So while, you know, we might, you know, give ourselves a pat on the back and say, well, gosh, look, we're 50% women or, you know, 30% ethnic minorities in this area of the organization. The leadership of the organization does not change as much when it comes to diversity characteristics, right? And so we can sometimes, if we just think it's about diversity, we can fool ourselves into what is really going on within the organizational dynamics. And we've got to get, you know, we, we have to look deeper and we have to also place 
more accountability in the leadership roles because they they more strongly influence the culture of the organization. Hmm. One of your uh, presentations, one of the pieces of work that you do at Inclusion Pro is... Um, for example, um, conversations on race, um, having authentic mm-hmm. conversations. I wonder if, if we could have you give us some advice, maybe more on the, you know, the, the broad community level or, or the national level. Yeah. We're, we're having trouble with this, as you know, on a national level. What, what are some things you can tell us to, 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 to maybe help us as we have these conversations? Yeah, I am. I'm very. <laughs> as you can imagine, my work's been very, very relevant the last six months, and um, been incredibly busy having, you know, very deep and insightful conversations with leaders. And you know, the the biggest advice I would have at this point is that leaders right now are really asking, "Well, what do I do?" And I can't answer that until there's a deeper understanding of the why. And it's spending time understanding the context at a deeper level so that as an organization, when you do decide to do something, you're doing it because you're committed, you you understand why you're doing something, and you really authentically believe it's the right thing to do, right? instead of a more reactive approach. And happily, I've been seeing that. So I guess maybe just to be very, very clear, um, the organizations I've been working with are willing to have those deeper conversations because oftentimes so much of so much of us are just simply dealing with we don't know what we don't know. We're in Utah. Utah only has 2.5% black people, right? 15% Latino, 3.5% Asian people. Most leaders do not spend a lot of time with people of color, right? It's just a simple fact. So oftentimes in these conversations, what we're doing is actually actually having um, what I would call connecting conversations to build empathy, Right. And to build understanding, because if I don't know what it's like to be a black person or a a person of color or a leader who happens to be a different ethnicity other than white, then 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 that's going to hamper my ability to be able to connect and understand where that person's coming from. And usually the divides that we're having are because we can't relate. Right. We, We just don't know where that person's coming up from and we don't really have a a productive way to have that conversation. And so I spent a lot of time really helping create what I call safe learning environments so that we can have these sensitive conversations in a way where we can deepen learning and understanding. You know, when I'm having these conversations, we sort of get rid of this idea that we're going to solve the problem. Right? This is not a problem-solving environment. This is a human-connecting environment that we desperately need to have right now. And that, I think, can be missing from a lot of conversations because we want to be so quick for, for people to understand where we're coming from. Um, but, you know, I would just, you know, recommend slow down that process, Right, because I think what our employees want to see is they want to see consistent, sustainable commitment 
to whatever it is that you decide to do. Um, but they want it to be real and authentic. You know, and I've had some of the most meaningful and wonderful conversations with executives who have such a deep desire to learn and grow and will just completely acknowledge that that up until now they haven't had a really, you know, solid understanding of, of the why, right? I mean, it can be the why of anything, right? Why Black Lives Matter? Why this? Why, you know, why this? And the other thing, too, I think maybe just to kind of relieve, some, pull some pressure off of leaders, is oftentimes, for some reason, they feel like, well, now I need to make my organization into a social justice organization. And, <laughs> and that, for some, for some reason, that, that puts a lot of pressure and so what is, I think, great in these conversations is we can have a productive way for them to understand, you know, if you have a desire to really support social justice, here's where it makes sense in your organization. But your your company or organization is really set out to do something really, really well. It's not it's not created to be a social justice organization. So don't don't try to make it that, right? But here's where social justice can really play a part that's aligned to your work and your business in a way that makes really authentic sense, right? So oftentimes, you know, helping leaders work through that process can, can one, I think, you know, build some capacity and some critical learning areas. But then, two, maybe take some of the pressure off where they felt they needed to be reactive, but they can actually channel that energy in a more productive way, in a way that their employees can really benefit from. Just have a couple of minutes left in the program. Um, I just want to make yeah. a, a brief. Time has gone really it's, fast. It's gone, it's gone fast. <laughs> yes, a lot to talk about, and uh, people will, will want to uh, attend the presentation uh, Thursday at noon. Virtual presentation. Uh, it's free, but you do need to register. Uh, UtahWomen'sGivingCircle.com and click on events to register. Uh, just one minute here at the end. Um, I just want to have you maybe talk. One minute's worth about, uh, I found this at utahbusiness.com. The headline is how Sarah Jones, CEO of Inclosion Pro, finds peace while working at home. You're talking about COVID, and you, you, mm. you say you have small daily rituals, you call them, to bring a little peace during this uh, uncertain time. Uh, you say cut the video, you have puppy time, daily Dyson, I guess you've, <laughs> you vacuum, uh, step it up, <laughs> and uh, Peloton uh, meditation. Any one of those you want to you tell us just uh, a minute about? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, I've had way more video ever since um, the uh, ever since George Floyd and uh, you know Black Lives Matter movement, and so um, some of that I've actually had to reinvent on. That was you know kind of a lull when I was reflecting on those three months um, when we went through state shutdown. But you know, I'm a big fan of puppy time still, <laughs> so I still uh, you know regularly just we we got a COVID puppy like so many people. And it's been it's been really fun. Actually, my puppy pulls my boys out of their room, which is a lot of fun to be able to see my kids, even though we're living in the same house and, and hardly go anywhere. Um, but that has been a really fun part of of COVID that I can definitely look back on and say, like, there's some bright moments of this whole experience. And I understand you are you, you inclusion pro continues, right? You're just doing uh, probably doing some more um, virtual presentations and interactions 
We do. We've been able to shift to all virtual training and strategies. Certainly, I'll do in-person if an organization feels safe and we can socially distance. So I have done that. There's some preparation, obviously, that goes into that. But I will tell you, I've had some amazing conversations virtual. And um, I do have a learning and organizational development strategist on staff as well. Um, And we have really made these really wonderful interactive um, session. So even though people feel zoomed out, I will, I, I, I've been relieved to know that they always go away feeling like they got a really valuable training session. We use a lot of interactive um, features and really apply the best, um, you know, learning when it comes to online learning, right? We really try to apply the best learning experience so people are able to still have that, even if we can't be in person. We'll reach the end of our time here uh, just to, to mention that Sarah Jones is CEO of Inclusion Pro. You can find them at inclusionpro.com. Uh, she'll be the next speaker, the final speaker, in the Utah Women's Giving Circle Resilient 2020 Speaker Series. The title of her talk, uh, New Possibilities Amidst the Unraveling. And uh, that uh, talk is, a uh, presentation is uh, Thursday at noon, Thursday at noon. It is virtual and it is free, but you do need to register and you can do that by going to uh, UtahWomensGivingCircle.com and clicking on events. And do check out the TED Talk from Sarah Jones. You can co- find that from InclusionPro.com as well. Uh, Sarah Jones, it's been a, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure being on your show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, in the next Access Utah uh, is not tomorrow. It's just a minute away. We're going to have a special second hour of the program And we're going to be talking about the COVID situation in Utah, which uh, seems to be uh, getting worse by the day. And uh, we'll invite your uh, questions and comments uh, at upraxis at gmail.com. Join us just top of the hour. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and utahhumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Welcome now to a second hour of Access Utah for today, a special hour in which we'll talk about COVID in Utah. Utah recently set a new single-day record for COVID-19 cases. Governor Herbert has announced new guidelines, uh, and the Utah Public Health Association is calling for stricter measures to be taken to slow the spread of the coronavirus. UPR will devote a special hour in this hour to COVID-19 in Utah. Our guests include Brady Bradford with the Southeast Utah Health Department, Caleb Harrison, who's with the Bear River Health Department, and Ben Hart, Deputy Director of the Governor's Office of Economic Development. You can get your question or comment to us right now by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can call us at 800-826-1495. We'll get underway following the news.